Please listen as I read. Reading from the ESV. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord, Yahweh, said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come now to this psalm, there's so much revealed here regarding the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need the help and guidance of your Spirit. Lord, we want your Holy Spirit to open up this word to us today to uh, confirm it to our hearts and minds that we might know more of Christ and his great work in the world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Please be seated. Something has happened marvelous in human history. The incarnate God came to this world. He's going to come back a second time. This is the meaning of the word Advent. When we talk about the two comings of Christ, the Advent of Christ. The season of Advent begins today. Four Sundays before Christmas. The word Advent means coming or arrival. Advent is a time in which we remember Jesus' first coming and his second coming to which we're looking forward to. We look back. And we look forward to the future. We look at both these directions during Advent. Advent begins what we call the Christian calendar year. The goal of the Christian calendar year is to rehearse for the people of God every year the great redemptive acts of our Lord Jesus Christ. As the year progresses, we usually begin with Epiphany. That means the appearing, the revelation of Jesus Christ to the world, which is always on January 6th. And we often read epiphany texts, such as the coming of the Magi, the wise men, into Jerusalem to worship the newborn king. Or we may read uh, scriptures about Jesus' baptism, which the Father 
testifies to his son. And he says, this is my beloved son at whom I'm well pleased. As we move toward the spring months, we come to Holy Week in March or April. And we remember Christ's sufferings, his death, and his resurrection. Then 40 days after resurrection, we come to Ascension. Ascension is actually on a Thursday, but we usually celebrate it on a Sunday before or after that Thursday, in which Christ ascended back to heaven, and then he sends forth the Holy Spirit upon the church the day of Pentecost. And now that the Father has given his Son, revealed his Son, and the Spirit's been poured out, the church now has a greater understanding and experience that God is Trinity. And so we have Trinity Sunday. Well, today begins Advent. This year, we're going to be looking at four specific psalms that are Messianic psalms. A Messianic psalm is a psalm that reveals the Messiah. It has references to or prophecies about the coming of the Anointed One. The word Messiah means the Anointed One. Christ is the uh, uh, English translation of that. Christos in Greek. It means the one who's anointed with the Holy Spirit. The, peop- the person who would come, the Deliverer, to save God's people from their sins. And today we're going to be looking at one of the greatest messianic psalms among the 150 psalms. It is the second psalm. And this psalm, I believe you'll see today, reveals clearly that there is a king coming whom Yahweh will set, he would set, on the holy hill of Zion, the place where God meets with his people. And this king would be anointed with the Holy Spirit and be especially designated as the Son of God. He was anointed, the Son of God, the King of Zion, the King of the people of God. But the revelation of the coming of the King and the Son of God was not in a vacuum. It didn't take place in a vacuum. It was not outside of human history, but it took place in the midst of human history, in the midst of humanity with all of its sin and rebellion against Almighty God. Well, this Psalm 2 has a rather clear structure. There's 12 verses, and it's divided into four parts, three verses in each part. So it's one of those Psalms that's a little easier to follow the structure. Those four parts are this. First of all, verses 1 through 3, humanity's opposition to Yahweh's rule is futile. It's useless. Secondly, Yahweh's response to human opposition is decisive. Thirdly, verses 7 through 9, Yahweh has issued sure decrees regarding His Son. And the last portion, verses 10 through 12, Yahweh declares the necessity of submission to the Son. So let's look at this psalm together today. Another way to understand it is there are four voices being spoken here in each of these four sections. Uh, First section, one through three, 
a narrator is speaking. He's not named. More than likely, it's the Holy Spirit inspiring David to write this psalm. So I think the narrator is really God himself. And we see this in the first section. And then what he's doing here in the first section, he's describing the wicked rulers of the world and how they throw off, they reject any submission to God. In the second section, verses 4 through 6, the Father speaks. And in the third section, verses 7 through 9, the Son speaks. And then in the fourth and last section, again, the narrator, who I believe is really the Holy Spirit behind this, is again speaking. The first section here, verses 1 through 3, we see humanity's opposition to Yahweh's rule is futile. It's futile. It's useless. The scripture says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds, their bonds apart, and cast away their cards from us. So what do we see here? We see the nations raging with anger against God Almighty. The people of the earth are plotting how they can outwit God, and how they can carry on their sinful activities undisturbed and uninterrupted, how they can overturn the rule of God and instead make themselves the rulers of everything. Well, so they get together and they plan and they scheme to do evil. In Acts chapter 4, the Jewish leadership ordered Peter and John to quit preaching in the name of Jesus. And so Peter and John left and they went back to their own group. In Acts chapter 4, we read this, verses 24 through 28, 28. And it says, when they heard it, that is the church heard it, they lifted up their voices to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our Father, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and now he begins to quote from Psalms 2. Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They're quoting from Psalm 2. And it goes on to say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So there was this conspiracy between the Roman government, Pontius Pilate, and the Jewish leadership to put to death to eliminate Jesus of Nazareth. This was a fulfillment of the prophecy in Psalm 2 that kings and rulers would meet and plan how they could cast off any rulership over their lives by God or by his anointed servant, Jesus Christ. Now what happened in Jerusalem has happened many times throughout human history. Kings and rulers have tried 
to eliminate, to shut up, to destroy the Christian church. Some of the Roman emperors tried to do this. Remember Nero had Christians burned as street lights at night. Uh, communist governments have often been opposed to Christianity and tried to eliminate the church. In our present world, their political leaders and governments opposed to the church of Jesus Christ and they are persecuting Christians. North Korea, for example, it's very dangerous to be a Christian there. So what is God's response to this? See, wring his hands in helplessness, being unable to help his faithful people on earth? Is he frustrated because his people are being persecuted? Does he feel overwhelmed by the sin of mankind? Well, let's look at God's response here in verses 4 through 6. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So what we see here in this second section is that Yahweh's response to human opposition is decisive. What does he do? He laughs at human foolishness. It's been noted that this is the only incident in Scripture where we see God himself laughing, but it's not laughing because he thinks something is funny or humorous. He's laughing because it's pitiful. The humans think they can overthrow God. He holds them in derision. The scripture says ESV. What does the word derision mean? It means the use of mockery, ridicule, scorn, to show contempt, disdain. God holds these wicked rulers in disdain. So his wrath and his fury are stirred up by their rebellion. These mutineers who would cast him off the throne of the universe if they could and take over the driving of the ship. Yahweh will not just issue a decree from heaven, a pronouncement of judgment on the wicked, but he's going to do something more concrete. It says here, he will set his, his king, his own king, on Zion, his holy hill. God is going to respond in a very specific way. Zion is the place in the scriptures where God would meet with his people. Jerusalem was the key place in the Old Testament where God would come into the temple. The Shekinah glory of God, the presence of the living God would be in the temple. That's why David, for example, longed to worship God, to be in the presence of God at the temple. Well, <clears throat> the scripture says that Yahweh's response is 
He's going to send a person to deal with evil and rebellious humanity. I will set my king on Zion's holy hill. The great judge of the universe will not just remain on his throne in heaven, but he will come down to earth. He will become incarnate as a man, as a human king. He will come down and live among evil humanity and live among wicked kings and rulers and people. He'll rub shoulders with the sinful human race, yet he'll, be not, he'll not be tainted by the evil all around him, but he will remain the holy king in the midst of an unholy people. Who is this that will come from heaven and live at the holy hill of Mount Zion? The next section answers that question. The Son of God is speaking in this section, and he says, I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, You're my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So we can summarize this section, verses 7 through 9, like this. Yahweh has issued a sure decree regarding his son. The son states this. A decree has been issued by Yahweh. What is a decree? It's a de declaration of what God has determined that he will do. And he's not kept his plan secret, but he declares it publicly. Give you an example of a decree. On September the 22nd, 1862, President Abraham Lincoln issued the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, which declared that as of January the 1st, 1863, all enslaved people in the states currently engaged in rebellion against the <coughs> Union shall, quote, be then henceforth forward and forever free. That was the decree of President Abraham Lincoln. Well, the son here is speaking, and he tells us what God has declared that he will do. God declares and speaks to the son and says this, You are my son. Now, this was not new information to the son. The son knew this well, but it's a declaration, affirmation of Yahweh. He's affirming and certifying the relationship between himself and his son. He is the father, and the son is the son. He doesn't say, you're becoming my son, but he's declaring that the son was already his son. This was a reality. It was an actuality it was a declaration of their eternal relationship. In all eternity, the Father had been the Father to the Son, and the Son had been the Son to the Father. The Christian doctrine declares the eternal sonship of the Son. This is, it doesn't mean the Son is inferior in deity to the Father, He's not lacking in any of the attributes that make God to be God. 
Both the Father and the Son are equal in all the divine attributes such as power and glory and holiness and steadfast love and faithfulness. But there is an interpersonal relationship within the triune God between the Father and the Son and of course the Holy Spirit is there also. For example, in a human relationship, a marriage relationship, we have a man and a woman. The husband has roles and responsibilities in the home, and the wife has roles and responsibilities also. But they're equal in their full humanity and their value. They are equal. But in this eternal relationship of the father and the son, there's a new element that is added. Verse 7 says, Today I have begotten you. Well, what does that mean? They've been in eternal relationship. Begotten in normal language means to give birth to somebody, to, to a child. Well, probably what is happening here, <clears throat> often these psalms, according to scholars, were written in a historical situation, and they had maybe two fulfillments and the actual historical situation at that time and they pointed to a later fulfillment often regarding the Messiah. So in ancient Israel when a man became king he was anointed with oil to consecrate him to the service as king. So David who wrote this psalm had experienced this himself. He was anointed. It says in 2 Samuel 5, 3, So the elders, all the elders of Israel came to the king, that's David, at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David, king, over Israel. He was anointed. But there's another anointment being talked about here. It's by the anointment of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus Christ. The Son of God entered into his kingly ministry as the Messiah. He had always been God. But he entered into a, a new uh, realm, we might say, as the king of the people of God, as the Messiah, the incarnate Lord. Well, to understand a little better what this phrase means, Today I've begotten you. We need to look at the New Testament. We need to look at how the apostles understood this phrase and how they used it. And that will give us a lot of enlightenment on understanding what this means. Well, I'm going to give you several examples of how the apostles used this phrase, Today I have begotten you. First of all, from Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas were on their first missionary journey they came to Antioch in Pisidia, and they began, they went into the synagogue, and from the Hebrew scriptures, they began to declare the gospel. Acts 13, 33 says, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, 
no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. So what Paul is preaching here, he's quoting that Psalm 2, verse 7, You're my son, today I've begotten you. He said this refers to the fact that God raised his son from the dead. It refers to the resurrection of the dead. That's one meaning. There's other meanings. For example, at the baptism of Jesus, Matthew 3, 17, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus in the River Jordan, and there's a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. So there's an affirmation here of relationship. The Father is affirming his love for his son. In Matthew 17, 5, on the Mount of Transfiguration, the voice from the cloud spoke and said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So here again, the father is affirming his love for his son, his pleasure in his son, and he tells the people there, Listen to him. He's saying, This is the prophet in Deuteronomy 18 that was prophesied who would come and you must listen to everything that he says. Hebrews chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 5 quote from Psalm 2-7 also. Hebrews 1-5 For to which of the angels did God ever say you're my son today I've begotten you or again I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. God never said this to the angels he only said it to his son. So this scripture is pointing out the uniqueness of the Son of God, His greatness above angels. And then in chapter 5 of Hebrews, it says here, verse 5, So Christ did not exalt Himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by Him who said of Him, You're my Son, today I have begotten you. So this, Psalm 2, verse 7 also has a reference to the appointment of Jesus to the high priesthood of the people of God. So, these are messianic ministries that begin and were carried on in the ministry of Jesus. Priesthood, uniqueness, revelation, resurrection, this is some of the meaning that's built into this phrase, you're my son, today I have begotten you. There's another text. Let me bring out this, 2 Peter 1.17. For when he, that is Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So the voice, it says here in, in this text, when he, that is Jesus, received glory and honor from God. This is my son. So the son glorified, he was glorified by God the Father. Well, other things that the Father says to Jesus here in this section... 
says, I will ask of me, you're my son, you're the Messiah. I've appointed you to these ministries, which have been a part of your messianic ministries. So, and he says, ask of me, verse 8, and I'll make the nations your heritage. I have a gift for you. I want to give you. I want to give you the nations. That is the, the ethnic peoples of the earth and the ends of the earth your possession. So here's a great promise that God will give the nations to his son. And that he will shatter the opposers of Yahweh. Very graphic picture here of an iron rod being struck against a, a pot made out of clay. It would shatter it into pieces. That is the kind of judgment that the Son of God will inflict upon the ungodly who reject him. Well, the last section here, the last three verses, 10 through 12, here's what I see as the major idea. That Yahweh declares the necessity of submission to the Son. Again, the narrator speaks, saying, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve Yahweh with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is really a messianic psalm. Kiss the son. <clears throat> David was not the son. He was a man appointed to kingship in Israel. The nations were not given to him personally, the peoples of the earth. For a time he ruled Israel. But it was the son of God, the anointed king, who was given the nations of the earth, the peoples of the earth. The narrator here <clears throat> is saying to the kings and rulers, if they would be wise, they should listen to the word of God. They need to be warned not to imperil, to endanger their eternal destiny by rejecting the Son, to reject God, His Son, and His Word is a dangerous thing. It's really spiritual suicide. So to turn one's back on the only hope of knowing truth, of knowing how sins can be forgiven, of knowing what God has done in history, through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to reveal himself to humanity and provide for their redemption and salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. To turn one's back on this is a fatal mistake. Humanity every day rejects the knowledge of God because the creation all around us every day displays his glory his creatorship. 
instead of rejecting the knowledge of God, instead of refusing to honor him and give him thanks, humanity should bow before God and seek to know him. His creative, all-powerful hand is seen everywhere around us. Every good gift we have comes from Him. So we don't need to take these gifts lightly or flippantly. These kings and rulers and all the peoples of the earth should serve Yahweh, what does it say here, with fear and rejoice with trembling. Fear here refers to holy reverence and awe. He's the great God. He, he knows our thoughts before we thank Him, but we thank them. And we are creatures to whom we owe our very existence to Him. But if by His grace we have come to know this great God and enter into a personal relationship with Him, it gives us joy joyful trembling. We can only approach Him by His grace, His calling, His mercy. When He calls us to come, we respond because He's working within us, enabling us to respond to Him. And so we come to Him with trembling joy, not in giddiness, superficial joy, but a holy, joyful reverence that God would have mercy on a sinner such as me or you and bring us into his fellowship. To know the living God, <clears throat> there's nothing sweeter and more desirable on earth. King David, who also wrote Psalm 63, said this about God. He said, Oh God, you're my God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live in your name, I'll lift up my hands." This is the proper response to God. These kings and rulers are warned. In verse 12 it says, kiss the son. What does this mean? Well, it's an ex expression indicating submission to the son, to loving him, to be grateful to him. To kiss the son has this, it carries this meaning. It's it allows us to enter into the very presence of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ. He would allow us to come to Him and kiss Him. It indicates an intimacy of relationship between God and His people. As a child, would crawl up on His Father's lap and kiss His Father, so God's called and beloved people should draw near to Him. To kiss him, to enjoy affectionate intimacy with their Savior who suffered for them and died.
After all, Jesus paid a big price to bring his people to himself. Isaiah 53 says, After he makes his soul an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, the people he died for. He shall prolong his days. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one make many to be accounted righteous, for he will bear their iniquities. Well, there are some in the history of the world who came, some rulers who have come to know the Lord and submit to him and were not rebellious. Constantine, for example, Emperor Constantine in the early 300s was an example of a man who became a Christian and began to promote Christianity instead of destroy it like most of the previous Roman emperors. So Constantine and many others were blessed to find refuge in the Savior. To refuse to come to the Son of God, the anointed King, is to engender the anger and the wrath of God. But to take refuge in Him is to receive blessing without end. Make no mistake, God will judge the wicked, but God will also welcome those who love Him and submit to Him through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let us never reject God, turn away from Him, or reject the gift of His anointed Son, the anointed King. Some will do this. Probably many will do this, but let us, on our part, fully submit to God in gratitude and come before Him in joyful, trembling worship and adoration. This will please God and bring unending blessing to ourselves. So to God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Holy Father, you have done tremendous, marvelous things in the history of the world. You sent your Son to subdue rebels, mutineers, who would rob you of your lordship and your ownership and your rulership. You sent your Son to take people who are so selfish and sinful and change them 